privileged to be with you again. I'm really sorry I'm here for this reason, but I, I am really glad to be able to preach for you. And uh, we've been praying for Hope and for the Poe family, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles this morning with me, uh, we're going to open one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and it's probably not one you're expecting, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, if you'll turn there with me. It's a long chapter, we're going to read through it, and then we're going to look at it a little bit together, and maybe you'll understand why it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Leviticus 16, and before I read it, uh, let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be with us this morning. Uh, We pray that you would uh, bless your word to us. Guard us from distractions, Lord. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. Lord, you tell us that your word is truth. Sanctify us with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For it will appear in the cloud, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. 
No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy till he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place of the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in the readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting And shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and put on his garments, and come out and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes, and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves... And shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you. You shall be unclean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus ends this reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. How often do you read... Leviticus. I'm going to guess it's a relatively small amount. I remember when I was growing up uh, in a Christian home, I would, I would frequently make these commitments that I was going to read through the Bible in a year or, or some period of time, and, and I'd be going great through Genesis. In fact, I read Genesis so many times that I, I know it really well. And then, and then through Exodus, uh, all the way through chapter 13 when they go through the Red Sea, and then a few more chapters, and then about chapter 18 or 19... They start giving all of the dimensions and rules for how the tabernacle is going to be built. And then after a few chapters, chapter 25, they start doing it all over again when they start building it. And and it's almost verbatim what you just read for several chapters. and, And it gets tedious. Maybe you make it through the first section, but not likely through the second. And then they're... 
turn over to Leviticus and, and then you really have a slog. I didn't often make it as far as Leviticus, but when I did, you've got five separate sacrifices all repeated and they all sound exactly the same. And, and I think I almost never made it to uh, the, the next sections, the sections on impurity and uncleanness. And then here, the day of atonement, and then there's going to be more purity laws coming up. And so you might ask, when given one chance to preach and just a couple days to prepare, why did I pick Leviticus 16? And I think that's a good question. Uh, why choose this chapter? Why would we ever preach sermons, really, on the law in the Old Testament? Why, why would that be a place we go? Well, there's, there's a few reasons. We don't need to get into all of them. But first of all, it, it might seem obvious when I say it, but it's God's word, right? We're supposed to preach the whole counsel of God. So that's the very first reason why we would go there. He, he gave it to us to know him. And to know who we are and to know how we're to interact with him and how we're to live. But it also shows us his character. God's law shows us his character. In a moment, I'm going to quote Leviticus 19.2. It's in the middle of the law and he's, he's telling us how we ought to live. And he tells us the reason I'm giving you this law is I am holy, therefore you also must be holy as I am. What is that telling us? The law is a picture of his character, of his holiness, of who he is. And, and we can look at the Ten Commandments and see this. He, he gives us a Sabbath rest on the fourth day. Well, where do we find our true rest except in Christ? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He tells us in the Seventh Commandment, don't commit adultery. Well, you see this title of our series through Philippians right now. Who is faithful? And who is faithful still? God is the most faithful. We're commanded not to commit adultery because God is faithful. We're to be faithful as he is. The one who is the, the life giver tells us don't murder. The one who is the truth tells us don't lie. And we look over at the civil law, the laws for the nation of Israel. And what do we read every year at Christmas in Isaiah 9? But that, that the, the coming Messiah is going to be a king, and of the increase of his governments, there, government, there will be no end. We, we sing this in Messiah. We read this verse every year. So, so when we look at these civil laws, we learn something about his government. The ceremonial law, which we're looking at here, the sacrificial system, shows us Christ as well. And this is a particularly important chapter. Leviticus 16. I, I love, uh, many of you might know Kevin DeYoung, a minister in, in North Carolina. He calls this chapter the Easter of the Old Testament. And, and I think that's a good, a good way to describe it. This chapter tells us about what a, a few chapters later it's going to tell us this day is the day of atonement. Uh, in Hebrew, you might actually know these Hebrew words. In Hebrew, day of atonement is Yom Kippur. So every, every autumn, at the beginning of the, the Jewish year, they have Rosh Hashanah, and then 10 days later, they have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. To this day, they practice it, and it's the, the most holy day of the year for a practicing Jew. And then, as I said, it, it gives us a picture of Christ. Well, what do I mean by this? I, I remember growing up, I grew up in Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., and, um, and one of our favorite places when we took the metro into D.C. to go was the Vietnam Memorial. We went every 4th of July, but then we'd go lots of other times during the year as well. And, and you might 
be familiar with the Vietnam Memorial? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen pictures. It's this massive black marble stone that has the names of every single soldier who was killed during the Vietnam War listed on it. I don't remember the exact number, 58 or 60,000, something like that, names that are listed. And... Um, and when we were there, I remember several times uh, we did what a lot of the people visiting do. My dad has a cousin who does And so we would get a piece of paper and a pencil, and we'd look up on, on which slab he, his name was. It's, it's, uh, it's chronological in terms of when they died during the war. And you'd take this paper, and you'd put it up against the slab, and you'd take the pencil, and you'd kind of... Uh, shade it until you could see you, you know what you see you see the the pencil and it's kind of white where the name is and you can see what is there on the wall you got this shading and and this is kind of like what you see in the scriptures the scriptures call the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament types. A type is a, a Hebrew word that talks about an impression that a stamp makes. You've got the stamp itself and then the impression that it makes. And it's, it's the picture. And, and so we see pictures all through the Old Testament of Christ and of salvation. Abraham's son of promise. The New Testament tells us Isaac points to the true promised one, Christ. We see all through the New Testament that Christ is great David's greater son, the, the true king, the true righteous king of God's people forever. John tells us that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. There's a Passover lamb every year, but Jesus comes, the true Passover lamb, and there's no more Passover lambs. It points to Jesus. So when we look at this, we, we want to see Jesus and we want to see the gospel in Leviticus 16 this morning. So we're going to look at the Day of Atonement. That's going to be our title this morning. And the first thing we need to notice when we look at this chapter, and I'm going to tell you, I'm only going to look at a few big things in this chapter. Everything in this chapter in some way points us to Christ and to the, the gospel. I, I could look at, at his, his clothing, the priest's clothing. I could look at so many elements we're not going to look at this morning. We're just going to look at a few things. The first thing I want us to see when we look at this chapter is the problem of holiness. The problem of holiness. You might not think holiness is a problem, but I'm going to show you why it is. The word holiness or holy appears in the book of Leviticus 87 times. 87 times. It is what God is. That's part of why it appears so many times. But it is also what God requires of his people. I just quoted a moment ago, Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. It's the character of God. And so, the priest had to be holy. He had to wear holy clothing. He had to cleanse himself in a holy manner. Everything he had to do was holy. The people had to be holy. And the problem with this holiness is that the story of the whole Bible is the story of a holy God who created mankind to, to live with him in fellowship. But then our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. They were no longer holy. And now all of mankind is unholy. We're, we're filthy. We can't have fellowship with God. He, he can't even look on us in our sin. 
And, and it's the picture, you know, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books here that Moses wrote, the, the Pentateuch, give us a picture almost of the, holy, of the whole Bible. It's, it's the story of the whole Bible here. So what happens in, in Eden at the very beginning of Genesis, we see that God's people are created and then uh, they're cast out of Eden when they sin and God gives them this means of atonement and a way that he will dwell with them. He saves them and by the end of of Deuteronomy, what's happening, but they're going into his promised land. And, and you know, you get to Hebrews in the New Testament. What does Hebrews tell us? But that Abraham knew when God promised him a promised land that it wasn't actually a, an earthly one, but it was a heavenly one, Hebrews 11 tells us. And, and so what do we see in the whole Bible? But God creates at the beginning, and his people sin, and, and fellowship with him is broken, and he provides a way of redemption, uh, a Passover lamb, a lamb who will provide a perfect sacrifice. And at the very end, what do we see in Revelation 19 to 21? But we're going into the holy land... The real holy land, the real promised land. And it's what we see here. It's, it's all pointing us to the gospel and to Christ. So what has happened before we get to Leviticus 16? Well, as we've already said, Adam and Eve were created, and, and then they sinned, and they were cast out of Eden. But then in, in Genesis 12, and I know you've gone through some of this in fairly recent days. I've, I've been here to go through some of this with you. But in, in Genesis 12... By his covenant, God created in Abraham a people for himself. And then you get to Exodus, and we see that he calls them, now, now a great people who are in slavery that he has multiplied. He calls them out of Egypt and out of slavery. And he was showing in, in this his faithfulness to the promises he'd made to Abraham 400 years earlier when he told Abraham he was going to do this. He purchased them. He redeemed them from slavery. They were slaves to the Egyptians, but now he told them that they would be his people, and he would be their God. They're not the Egyptians' people anymore, they're his people, and he is their God. Just as he'd said to Abraham he would be. And then he took them through the Red Sea and out to Sinai, and then as I said, from Exodus 19 on, all the way through Leviticus, and then all the way up to the end of number, or the middle of Numbers, Numbers 11, they're at Sinai. So, so we've got this long book that starts at creation, covers thousands of years up through Exodus 18, and then there at Sinai, and then at the end of Exodus 18, and then from Exodus 18 all the way to Numbers 11, they're in, at Sinai, and then they spend 40 years, the rest of Numbers and Deuteronomy, wandering in the desert before they go into the Promised Land. So of those first five books of the Bible, a third of them, from Exodus 18 to Numbers 11, covers just 11 months while they were at Sinai, a very important 11 months. And he gives them the tabernacle, this, this tent for him to dwell in right in... We just sang a few minutes ago, Lord of hosts, you are with us. With us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. This is what he does. He dwells with us in our midst. But there's some things through this whole story that have happened, that have created a problem with this promise, a problem of holiness, and a problem with him dwelling in their midst. It's, it's something that's, how is this going to happen? First of all, after they left Exodus, after they left the Red Sea, as they were headed to Sinai, right after God did these miraculous things to save them, they rebelled multiple times, they faced multiple punishments on just that, that very short few-month trip. 
So here they'd been brought out of slavery with the ten plagues. The Red Sea had opened up. God had killed Pharaoh's soldiers for them, and then they disobeyed immediately. They can't even trust him or obey him for a few months. The second thing was they got to Sinai, and God appeared on Sinai. And maybe you know the story. He comes down on the top of the mountain, and there's fire, and there's cloud, and there's thunder, and his voice speaks from the mountain, and he tells them, Moses can come up and talk to me. None of the rest of you can even touch the mountain. In fact, make sure there's a fence so that you cross it. Because if you cross that, if you touch the mountain, you die. Because if you come into my presence, you die. I am holy and you're not. So that if the rest of you even touch the mountain, you'll die. So the whole second half of Exodus is about this tent that they are to build for God right in the middle of their camp. And... And the question is, how can they have him in the middle of their camp without dying? Because they can't touch the mountain without dying. How in the world is he going to be in their camp? Well, the beginning of Leviticus, the first 15 chapters, gives them the rules for their priest, the most holy man in Israel, to be clean enough to come near God. And then there's the rules for the sacrificial system, the offerings for the tabernacle, so that they will be holy like he is, so he can dwell among them. But then there's a third problem. And it happens back in Leviticus 10, but it's mentioned here at the beginning of our chapter. Aaron has these two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, two brothers. They're the ones, as you read, who when he's done being the high priest, when he dies, they should take over for him. One of them will take over for him. And, And they're doing what priests do in the tabernacle. And they go into the presence of the Lord. They bring strange fire into the presence of the Lord. Leviticus 10 doesn't really tell us much more about that. All it means is somehow they go into the presence of the Lord sinfully, not in the way that he told them to do. They did it in their own way. And they're immediately struck dead. Immediately he strikes them dead. It's like what would have happened if any of the people had touched the mountain. God was, was on and so Aaron's sons die. And, and Aaron, you can imagine, isn't going near God again because I don't want that same thing to happen to me. And so we come to this chapter in light of this. How on earth is Israel going to survive? How can they be in God's presence? How can they be on his, his earth even? They're, they're sinners. And, and he is holy. And... And actually, it's not just a question facing Israel. At Sinai, 4,000 years ago, it's a question that we ought to be asking because we're sinners. And what we actually know is that every one of us is going to die. I would guess that if I asked for a showing of hands and said, which of you thinks that you will never die? That probably nobody would raise their hands. We all know we're facing death. It's, It's the way things go. All of our ancestors have died. We look at, Jared mentioned the crazy times we live in. Look at the news. 400,000 people in this country have died because of this new virus this year. And in the United Kingdom, the country where I minister, they just hit this past week 100,000 who've died. They're a country only about a sixth of the size of the U.S. by population, but they've had 100,000 who've died in the last year. And why do we all die? 
Well, you can say the immediate causes, a virus or a heart attack or whatever else it is, but the reason we die is because we're sinners. Adam and Eve weren't created to die. And then they sinned, and they were cast out of Eden, and then there's a genealogy right afterwards, and what happens in that genealogy? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's why there's suffering, that's why there's sickness, and that's why there's death. And the Israelites at Sinai have this immediate question, how can we live? This tent is going to be in the camp. But we still have this question, how can I live in this world that a holy God created? And we answer this in so many different ways. Scientists research vaccines. You know, uh, scientists research Alzheimer's cures. Uh, We read news stories about how tech billionaires are spending lots of money to see if they can live forever. We exercise to live longer, or some of us do. I'm not really always included in that, some of us, but but (laughs) we eat good food sometimes in order to live longer. But none of it gives us what we want. So how can we live? Well, life and blessing is found with God. But we're sinners, so we can't be with God. That's the problem of holiness. And Leviticus 16, interestingly, gives Israel a way to live with God. Which is why it's the Easter. He gives the priest a way to enter right into his presence. So the second thing I want us to see in this text, the first is is the problem of holiness. The second thing I want us to see is preparation for God's presence. Preparation for God's presence. As you might have noticed, there are burnt offerings and sin offerings that have to be made. At least four offerings that have to be made here. It's hard sometimes with some of the cleansings and the washings and the clothes changing and all of the other stuff to know exactly how many things happen in this because there's some repetition, but there's at least four sacrifices that need to be made here. Atonement has to be made for the priest. Atonement has to be made for the people. And atonement has to be made for the tabernacle and everything in it. So uh, there is a bull and a ram that are going to be sacrifices for the priest. There are two goats and a ram that are going to be sacrifices for the people. Two sacrifices are going to come out of those three animals. And they're also going to make atonement for the tabernacle. And you might ask, wait a minute, why are we making atonement for a tent and for a bunch of furniture and for a bunch of utensils? Well, the text tells us. It tells us because... It's in the middle of the people, so it's corrupt. There's two elements to the effects of sin on us. We're guilty of sin because Adam and Eve sinned. You and I are guilty before God because of Adam's and Eve's sin. It tells us this in the scripture. They they were guilty, and we are guilty of sin before God, but we're also corrupted. It it corrupts our nature. It corrupts the way we act. It corrupts the things we do. It corrupts our desires. It corrupts our, our will. We say, well, I was born with this sinful desire. Yes, you were. You're guilty and corrupt. And so you have these corrupting things. And and sin corrupts. And and what do we know? But corruption means that it corrupts other things. That's the nature of the word. Something that is corrupting corrupts other things. And sin corrupts everything it touches. Uh, Remember that, that Isaiah, when he's 
in Isaiah 6 uh, in front of uh, God in the temple and God says, who will go for me? And he says, I'll go. And the angel touches the coal to his lips to cleanse him. What is the confession of his sin he makes? He says, I am a sinful man and I dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Even the sin of the people around him corrupts him and he confesses this. Aaron is sinful, the people are sinful, so the tabernacle and all its utensils and furniture are corrupt because they're in the middle of this people. The burnt offerings pay the price. And remember, I mentioned earlier in Leviticus, there's all these five different types of offerings, peace offerings and grain offerings and burnt offerings and all of this stuff. A burnt offering pays the price for general corruption and guilt. So you would say, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in Adam, and so I bring on some sort of regular basis this, this sin offering, and I make it, actually there's a sin offering every morning, a sin offering every evening, and I make this for general corruption and guilt, for who I am, for who I'm around, for the guilt of my sin in Adam, for my corruption that comes from it. And then the sin offering is for specific things that I have done wrong. Specifically, actually, if you go back and read it, it's for unintentional sins. Sins that I didn't intend to commit. The the thing that this shows us is that there's a cost for sin. We've just been talking about this. The cost of sin is, is death. We have to die because we have sinned. In Genesis, it says, if you sin, you will surely die. And, and this is what happens. There's a cost for sin. But in this system that God has given, a ram or a bull or a goat dies in the place of the people. So instead of them dying, this ram or this bull or this goat dies in their place. It's what we would call a substitutionary sacrifice. It substitutes for the person who brings it. God is angry over this rebellion, the treason of sin. And parents, I imagine, or dog owners, you understand this. We have a new puppy. And I'm really trying to teach her how to do the right thing. Really trying to teach her not to bite my young children. And most of the time she's doing pretty well. But then she gets really excited and she hurts one of my children. And I don't respond as graciously as I should. Too often I I get angry because she didn't do what I taught her to do. And, And actually I sin in my anger all the time. I yell at my children or I do something wrong. But God doesn't sin in his anger. But he has a righteous anger against the treason and the rebellion of sin. And death is the only just payment or penalty. The cause this passage is telling us for the the enmity, the warfare between God and man is not him, but us. But what we see here is that he's made a way for us to be reconciled. There are sacrifices that appease his wrath towards sin. They, They pay the penalty that we justly deserve to pay. They cover our sin. And when we look at the Day of Atonement, this is one element of this whole system. We see the same thing represented in the clothes that Aaron wears. Not the clothes here. These clothes are actually clothes of humility. I told you we're not going to get into them much. But if you go back to Exodus, when he does the normal daily routine in the tabernacle, he wears these incredible garments, this blue robe, because blue is a really hard dye color to get at, at that point, and, and all of these other things, this marvelous clothing that represents holiness. 
God's made provision for his sinful, corrupt self to be covered over to enter into God's presence. And as I said, it's not just Aaron and the people who need to be atoned for, but the tent of meeting. Verses 16, 19, 20. As we said, what did the tabernacle do wrong? It came into contact with the people. And when this atoning sacrifice is made, blood from this atoning sacrifice covers their sin and corruption, and it, it makes all the covering that's needed. And, and we see this. They take the blood, and, and sprinkle is a word that we think of maybe a little too lightly. It's, it's not a sprinkle. It's, it's a heavier... There's a lot of blood as it does this seven times. It puts it on the front of the altar, and then as you read elsewhere, you see he does it on the curtain, and he does it on the floor in front of the altar, and he does this seven times... Seven times is an important number because it means it's complete. He does it on top of the mercy seat. The only way into the presence of the God of God is through blood. He can't come into God's presence without walking on a floor that is covered in blood, through a curtain that is covered in blood, onto another floor that is covered in blood, to come to God before a golden box that is also covered in blood. And goes to the altar and the throne that had been covered in blood... But then once this is accomplished, that's not everything. Because remember, there's two sacrifices for the people, but there's three animals. And so there's this one living goat that's going to go to Azazel, which is just the Hebrew word. We're not absolutely certain what it means. Uh, Some people think it, it means scapegoat. And this isn't just like every Thanksgiving. You know, every Thanksgiving, the there are two turkeys brought to the White House. Maybe you didn't know this, but there's two turkeys brought to the White House every Thanksgiving. And, and remember, the president has this pardoning power. And, and so he looks at these two turkeys, and he or somebody who works for him decides which one's going to live and which one's going to die. And he pardons one of them, and it goes off to a farm somewhere and lives the rest of its days. And then the one that he didn't pardon, it's dinner on Thanksgiving Day. And this isn't merely a pardoning like that. The, the payment for their sin has been made by the blood of the atoning sacrifice. God's anger at sin, the just penalty, has been paid. But this goat actually pictures something else that happens when God, or when atonement is made for God's people. We read that he places his hand on the goat and he confesses all of Israel's sin from the previous year. And then the goat takes all of the sin of all of the people and it's led outside the camp. Where is God? He's in the tent, in their midst, in the camp. The goat is taken outside the camp. And God looks around and says, where's the goat? The goat's not here. I can't see your sin. It's it's a picture of what is happening. God doesn't only use this substitutionary sacrifice to pay for their sin, but then he also takes their sin and he, what does the Bible tell us, separates it from us as far as east is from the west. And so there's this second goat taken as far away from them as it could be, and then it was set free. And then all through these steps, there's cleaning and washing clothes and changing and burning and more cleaning and changing clothes again, all to keep purity. And this ought to give us a picture. Just how much preparation is needed. And just how filthy and corrupt and corrupting sin is and makes those of us who are sinners. 
In fact, Romans 8 will tell us that it's not just the tabernacle, but it's actually the whole world that is affected by our sin, that's groaning under the weight of sin. We can't come before God or into his presence, but this system shows that where we can't do anything to fix the problem, God has done something to fix the problem. God's provided a way. He's, he's made a payment for sin that, that we wouldn't have come up with. And he, he takes sin away and he removes it from us as far as east is from west. But, but again, there's still another problem even in this preparation in Leviticus 16. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but there's another problem. And we see this in a few places in the text. The problem is that the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 isn't enough. Otherwise, we'd still be doing it. There is still a curtain between God and man, so only the priest can go in. We still can't look on him with uncovered eyes, so even though the priest is allowed to go in, he has to put all of this smoke in there so that when God appears, he can't actually see him, his glory, directly. And this is different than how it was in Eden because Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden and they saw him and they were in his presence without sin. And then the other problem with this is that it needs to be done again and again and again and again. And we see this at the end. The whole process is done at the beginning of every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In the garden, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in his uncovered presence with no sacrifice for sin, no sin, no death. But now there's a curtain that stands in the way and a constant sacrificing. And only the priest can go in and then incense blocks his view. So what's to be done? Well, this is, this is where those pictures of Christ are so amazing that I mentioned at the beginning. The, the types that point us to Christ. And, and thankfully, the New Testament many times, not always, but many times explains them to us because we're too dense to see the pictures of Christ. We need a sacrifice that is enough, that doesn't have to be repeated, that will actually let all of us go in and not just the high priest, that will give us full view of God's presence because he is the giver of life and, and that's where we have life and blessing and abundance and, and not just kind of a, a hazy, dim view that we can't really understand. And these sacrifices in Leviticus 16 aren't enough because Hebrews 10, when it's actually talking about this chapter, says all the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It tells us there's a problem, the same problem we just mentioned. Uh, the reason that these bulls and goats atoned for Israel's sin wasn't because the bulls and goats took away sin. It was because they were... It wasn't their own value. It was because they were pictures... Images that pointed to the only true substitutionary sacrifice that did take away sin. Hebrews 9 is also talking about Leviticus 16. It's talking about this exact chapter. And it tells us in verses 11 and 12, When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Atonement wasn't made because these 
goats and rams and calves were so valuable, it was made because they were stand-ins or, or pictures pointing to the real sacrifice. Israel was saved by trusting God's promised true sacrifice. It, it was Christ that saved Israel, not the goats and bulls, just like he saves us. And then notice what Hebrews tells us, and it tells us more in other places. Jesus I just was talking about how Jesus was the goats, but Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the ram that pays the penalty for sin. If we read on in Hebrews, we see that Jesus is the scapegoat, and and actually he was carried outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem, to be placed on the cross. And we read that it's Jesus' blood that covers the ground and the altar. It's Jesus' blood that tears the curtain in two so that there's no longer any dividing barrier. And because he's torn the curtain, cutting off access to God's presence... And he entered the presence of God as a perfect high priest and with a perfect sacrifice, without any incense clouding up the view of God, his people are able to enter in with him. Again, what song we just sang. We just sang the song, It Is Finished. We talked about this very thing. Once for all, a sacrifice that has made atonement for our sin. And it, and it has a whole host of purposes. And there's, there's other purposes in other parts of the sacrificial system we see. This doesn't show us everything. But what we do see here is that when Jesus Christ died, if we trust in him, he, he brings us in himself into the presence of God through the curtain that he has torn into. He pays... Remember, we're sinners. We're going to die. He pays the penalty... For our sins. He gives us eternal redemption, eternal life. And then, what's more, He takes our sins on Himself after the penalty has been paid for them, and He takes them so far away that they're no longer attached to us. And when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin. He he in fact sees Jesus' righteousness. Is that picture in 2 Corinthians 5 when it tells us that that God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. As I said, there's a lot more there. But his people can enter in with him. When we are in Christ, when we trust in him, we can boldly approach the throne of grace anytime without timidity or fear. And when Hebrews says that, it's talking about prayer. And, and so we were talking about how the Old Testament saints were saved in Christ just as we are. How many of the Old Testament saints in the Bible boldly go to God in prayer and their prayers are answered? It's not because they're high priests. It's because in the sacrificial system they had hope in Christ. And we can dwell with God forever. And all we have to do is come to God trusting in Christ as our sacrifice. Nothing else makes atonement. Now, there's a whole list of implications that this is going to have in our lives. It's going to change the way we live. We're, we're transformed. But it's not what we do that makes us right before God or gives us any hope before God. It's the fact that Jesus has done something. The sacrifice of Jesus cleanses us. And there's nothing we do but look to him and 
when we come before God and it is time to die, we say, he died for me. I, I can't do anything to live. He died for me. And then it's also the power over sin. The power over sin in our lives as we're cleansed, but then the power over the sin that we keep trying to put to death. You understand why I love this chapter. And, and all of the other pictures are the same. That There's a picture of Christ here. And you read this Old Testament law, but you see Jesus who died. But you know these goats, what happens to them? Did you notice that at the end? What happens to them after all the sacrifices are made and they've burned the fat and they've, you know, sprinkled the blood everywhere, this really messy scene? Well, they take the dung and they take the flesh and they take the fur and everything else. They take it outside the camp and they burn it. And it's gone. It's a bunch of ash. But what happened to Jesus? When he was taken outside the camp and he was slaughtered, Three days later, he rose to life. They didn't take the body and burn it later. They didn't do anything with that. And, and when he rose to life, he brings us to life with him. That's the hope we have here. Jesus is in every way better than this system. And in every way righteous, such that we have hope in him. And so we look at this and just like they looked to the goat, we look to Christ, the, the clear picture. We don't have to look to that shaded picture that we've taken a pencil and, and made a shading of. We can look to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning to be able to look at your word. Uh, to be reminded that there is hope. We are sinners, but there is hope for fellowship with you, for life, for joy in your presence. In fact, Lord, as we trust in Christ, you tell us in your word that we are the apple of your eye, which is remarkable to us. We pray that we would uh, come from this text looking more to Christ and hoping more in him, that we would not take our eyes off of him to look at anything else, but keep our gazes fixed on him. In Jesus' name, amen.